Hey everyone, and welcome to Social Sport. I'm Emma Zimmerman, and on this podcast, I feature conversations with endurance athletes of all types committed to fostering social change. The athletes that I speak with on this show are climate change activists, mental health advocates, promoters of more inclusive outdoor spaces, and much more. Through Social Sport, I share the stories and thoughts of people who explore the connection between sport and activism in their lives. Ebony Blackwell is a PhD candidate, a mom, and a runner on a journey to complete a marathon in all 50 states. Through her mother-daughter blog, Living in the Breeze, Ebony and her daughter, Charm, aim to inspire people to live outside the box and to show that the outdoors are for everyone. I could basically spend a whole episode on each of Ebony's passions. There are just so many, but I won't do that. Instead, in this episode, Ebony and I talk about her PhD research on Black women in predominantly white STEM graduate programs. We also talk about her mother-daughter blog, and Ebony shares her experience balancing work, school, motherhood, and running. We have so much fun. I really enjoyed this conversation with Ebony. I learned a lot from her. I hope you have fun and learn a lot from this conversation too. Hi, Ebony. Welcome to Social Sport. Thank you for having me on. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you on. When I was reading about everything you're doing, I just kept thinking there's so much you've done and so much you're doing right now that there are so many topics we can talk about and I'm excited to dive right into all of it. Great. I would love to share more about all of the things that I get into. I get that a lot, that people think I'm doing a lot, but to me, it's just my everyday, so... (laughs) Cool. Well, we'll learn a lot more about it. And I feel like that's a common thing on this podcast. I always talk to people who are just doing, they're so passionate about many different directions. So to start us off, can you drop me into your space right now? Where are you in the world? Well, currently I am in New Orleans, which was my home for a very long time. I recently moved to California Um, for a job offer last year in September, but with everything going on in the world, everything COVID and working remotely, my daughter and I decided to come spend the summer here in New Orleans so we could see family and be closer to our support system. Nice. So when did you get back to New Orleans? Oh, we've been here about a week and a half now. Um, We got heat, we drove, packed the car up as soon as her distance learning for school ended, um, which was couple Fridays ago now and last Sunday we got here so we've been here a week and a half in the nice humid hurricane season weather that New Orleans has to offer right now. Have you had a chance to do any of your favorite New Orleans things now that you're home? What are your New Orleans favorites first of all? For sure. Well not all of them of course because I'm still trying to make sure that I'm respecting everything COVID and totally being mindful about social distancing Typically, one of my favorite things to do in New Orleans would be to run, and I'll be honest, but I just have not done that, because when I got back, I dropped my daughter off with her dad and his family, and I prioritized food and a couple good drinks, (laughs) so first stop Monday morning was for crawfish, 
and eating at some of my favorite places that were open around the city and getting some takeout and bringing it home. Um, seeing a couple of my favorite people, able to go to one of my favorite parks and sit six feet away from one of my best friends and do some air hugs and see her. But I'm eager to, now that I've gotten some of my favorite food spots in, to get back into running hopefully in the next week or two out here as well. Well, I think food usually takes priority. So I like that for you sure. said that. <laughs> yeah. I, food awesome. definitely takes priority for me. Yeah, totally. I completely relate to that. And you know, there will always be time for running and it seems like you have made quite a lot of time for running in your life. So that's cool that other things right now when you're back home can take a little bit of priority. Definitely. Especially in California is great, not knocking it, but where I live, there's not as many options for food as there is here in New Orleans. So both my daughter and I had really, really been craving some of our favorites. So I was like, when I get home, I'm eating at all my spots. Yes, for sure. So getting a little bit more into the the thick of it, I know that inspiring others seems to be kind of at the core of everything you do. And we'll talk more about that. You know, you're inspiring Black women in STEM. You're inspiring people through your blog and through all of your past work in running. And I really want to know more about how that started, just that passion for inspiring others. Was that an early age that you noticed that passion? How did it begin? Yeah, so I, it definitely wasn't an early, early age type of thing. I would say sometime in the last 10 years or so, maybe, it, it became a, a realization for me that it was something that I was passionate about. When I was working here in New Orleans at Xavier University, I was working in a biology resource center, which was focused on tutoring and academic support for biology students. And at the beginning of the year, we would give a pep talk kind of workshop to our students where we would talk to them about how to basically survive as first year students and maintain their academics and get through the rigor of their programs. And one of the things that I would tell them is that for me, it's a mindset thing. Things aren't often handed to you in the way the world is set up, especially at Xavier University, which is a historically black college, um, university, a Catholic institution. So we're serving minority students um, as our majority. And when it comes to underrepresented minorities in academia, things for sure are not handed to you. Um, it's not easy. There's extra hoops usually to jump through. There's extra barriers. There's typically less support systems. And that's not necessarily, that's not at all how it should be. And it's up to institutions and whatnot to fix that and provide those types of resources for students. But occasionally they're gonna encounter places where places are not equipped and they're not doing what they should do for students. But they should not let those types of things hold them back for what their goals are, what their dreams are, what their passions are. And sometimes it comes down to a flip of the switch of what your mindset's gonna be and how how much do you want something? And also there's always in that talk, I would tell them, students think they can either have academics or they can have a personal life. And they, there's like no middle ground, like how do you have both of those things? And that's really hard for a college student, especially a college student who's leaving home for the first time and they wanna go out and have a good time, but they also don't wanna flunk out of college. So like, where's that level ground? And I tell students they can have it. So I'm, I was working with them on building balance. How can they enjoy their college life, work out, go out with friends, have a good time, but still maintain their academics so they can get to that next step. These students are coming to me in biology wanting to go to grad school eventually, wanting to go to medical school or another professional school eventually. So 
how can they maintain that life balance? So I would call it my, my domination talk. <laughs> like you got to dominate life, which is what I got from like a drill sergeant from my time in the military who used to always tell us that you have to go out here and you got to dominate. And I, I would tell my students that, how are you going to dominate when you wake up today? How are you going to get things done? Or what excuses are you going to use when you don't get it done? Like, which one are you settling for? And one of my students after that, who was a tutor, she wasn't even there. She's already excelling academically. Um, she was like a sophomore, junior, didn't even need this pep talk from my understanding. The next day she was like, man, Miss Blackwell, I've just been thinking about how you told those students to go dominate. And like, that has just been on my mind. And I, I want to dominate. And from there, it clicked to me that people were listening. And it felt good that I reached somebody that I wasn't even intending to reach in that room that day. I think those types of experiences and those types of pep talks of working with young people really encourage me to want to push forward and inspiring people to pursue their dreams and their passions, no matter like what type of barriers they've encountered in life. And I've, I'm always very transparent with my students about like my life story and having my daughter in my undergraduate years and um, the issues that I had with my family and my upbringing and, you know, trying to just push through those things. And we can let our situations affect us or we can grind and work hard and try and get past those, which can be incredibly hard with the barriers that society puts in front of a lot of people. But I just like telling people and encouraging my young people, my young students, especially to, to push forward. So I think that's where the, the desire to inspire really came from, from working with my young college students. Wow, Ebony. Yeah, I can just see how lucky your students are to have had you. Just You just seem like such an inspiring mentor for them. And I'm curious because you talked first about, you know, you're at this predominantly black college and you notice that there are a lot of barriers, of course, with this system that we live under of white supremacy. There's not enough resources at this institution, it seems like, from from what you're saying. But how do you kind of straddle that line between teaching your students that, yes, this is not right, we need to fight this system, but also inspiring them that regardless of the barriers they have to work their hardest is that a difficult line to straddle it can be especially depending on the environment so the the school i was talking about actually is a historically black college which is known for putting resources into students so they're they're putting the resources into students that those students may not get other places Xavier University is is well known, actually, one of the top schools for putting black students into medical school. And it's because of the resources Mm -hmm. that we were putting and they continue, even though I'm no longer with them, that they continue to put into students, whether it's because of their encouragement for them to participate in research programs, the academic advising that they provide them, the very detailed um, tutoring opportunities they have in different subject matters. And it's those types of spaces that young people need. So it's phenomenal that these students are able to take advantage of that in a school like Xavier. But I wanted them to know that when they enter other spaces, you know, it's not always going to be like that. So that while they were there, they needed to take advantage of those types of resources. Because it can be hard. Because when you leave a space like that, that is specialized to help minority students um, from different various backgrounds, you're going to enter a lot of like predominantly white spaces that aren't affording those types of opportunities that aren't dedicating those types of resources all over the country. 
And that, that can be hard. That can be hard to navigate systems, especially education systems, K-12 and, and higher ed, when you have all of these systems that are against them. And you're going to encounter students that are like, so exhausted because they've been beating against a wall, they've been beating against a barrier and they may not need to. And that, that it's heartbreaking when you're like, some students, they just don't have anything left to give to flip that switch. So that mindset talk that I may have may fall on deaf ears for some students because they're like, I don't have anything left to give. And they need those resources put into them. And there's so many spaces that aren't putting those resources into them, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And in your voice, I mean, I can just sense so much passion towards the students that you work with and for being a mentor and an ally and really helping young people. And it seems to connect a lot with what you did in your time at Youth Run NOLA. Could you tell me a little bit more about that experience and what you learned from it? Yeah, so Youth Run NOLA is a lovely grassroots nonprofit here in New Orleans that I'm incredibly passionate about. I volunteered slash worked for them for about four, four and a half years. It started out as just a parent bringing my kid around to run. So to let you know what they are and who they are, um, they're a nonprofit here in New Orleans that works in various K-12 schools across the city. And they utilize running as a means to help create um, young leaders teach them different life skills through lessons of running. So after school, twice a week, students will meet up with their teacher coach, um, a coach who is a teacher at their school, who runs through a curriculum with them from around August through the end of the year, academic year. And they're, each time they meet up, they're working on a lesson whether it's how to collaborate with their teammates or how to go the extra distance that day and build their stamina, um, how it's to use their voice and lead a practice that day and hopes that those lessons that they're learning when it comes to running and learning how to run a minute without walking or a mile without walking and building up to a 5K, eventually a 10K and our older kids, eventually a half marathon or full marathon and learning through those lessons, learning how to then take those lessons and apply them to their everyday life of communicating with people, advocating for themselves, using their voice and spaces. So I started with them back in 2015. I was running and training for a 5K. My daughter wanted to join me. And I was like, baby, I don't know if you're ready for a 5K. And she was like, no, Good I want to her. Run. That's awesome. Right? She didn't know whether she was eight. She, you know, she didn't necessarily know. She had never really run, but she didn't know. She just wanted to go out that day and run with me. So I was like, okay. And we went out to the park and she ran with me. And like 50 meters in, she took off at a full sprint. And she was just like, oh, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do it. Take me home. But she ended up running two miles that day. And I told a friend of mine about it. And he was like, oh, you should bring her to this awesome youth organization called Youth Run NOLA. And they happened to be running the 5K with the kids that I had already signed up for that year. So it just worked out perfect. And my daughter, Charm, Charm and I went to the 5K. We met these people. And I was like, wow, this is a space that my daughter and I can exist in and have fun in. Um, we're bonding over running right now, even though she complains every step of the way, but we're bonding over it. And this can be a space for her and I to exist in New Orleans 
as mother and daughter and have something to do that we're both into right in that moment. And from there, it just, we ran every race that season with them. Charm ran a handful of 5Ks. She ran her first two 10Ks that year. And it was just this awesome experience, not just to be able to exist there with my daughter, but to now meet all these other kids in the city that were running. So one of the things that Youth Runola does is they use adults as mentors in what they call running buddies. So they pair two, one, two, three kids up with an adult to run the race. And while you're running, you're talking to kids, you're motivating them, you're encouraging them to keep going, but you're also talking about their everyday life and distracting them a little bit, especially the younger ones who are like getting tired and don't want to necessarily keep going. And you're building these awesome relationships with these amazing young people anywhere from third grade through high school, graduating seniors. And it just felt really good because I had never really worked in a youth development space before for me and working in higher education by the time I interact with young people, they're young adults. So it really felt good to now interact with these, these young people. And I realized that I needed this um, ability to better understand the needs of young people. And um, so that's how I got involved in Youth Run NOLA. It was thanks to my daughter. And after being a volunteer for about a year, they asked me to join their board of directors as a parent. And I did that. And then about maybe two years later, they asked me to join their full-time staff as their program director. So I did that for a year um, before I transitioned to my position at UC Davis in California. I love hearing that story about the first time you ran with your daughter because I volunteered as a girls on the run coach for a little while and so relatable. Like they always surprise you, right? You think Mm -hmm. like, oh, like you won't be able to run that. I'm like, take it easy. It's your first time running, you know, a couple miles or whatever. And they always surprise you. (laughs) For sure. And the young ones are, I love them. They're adorable while they're running. They're motivated. It's easy to distract them with like a game of, oh, we're going to chase down this next light pole or let's catch that person up there and then maybe we'll walk for a while. With my daughter, I would trick her with like a snack after the race. She would get tired, like like I said, 50 meters in and she'd be like, ah, that's not my life. I don't want to do this anymore. My feet hurt, my back hurt. (laughs) So I'd be like, okay, well, if you finish this race, you know, we'll go get an icy or we'll go get some ice cream. And that would motivate her. And it was just, it's so nice to see them. I didn't run my first three miles until I was in the military and in my twenties. And I'm like, I ran track in high school, but I was a short distance, I was a sprinter. So to see these young people running these long distance was so inspiring to me. Yeah, and I think it's so cool to learn about kind of how your mentorship goes all the way to such young people and how much you're inspired by young people because you also have quite the experience in mentorship with women who are also graduate students. So it just seems like your mentor work is is pretty diverse in that realm. And I'm talking specifically about your PhD research. So I want to double check. You are still in your PhD program, correct? I am. I am in my dissertation phase of my PhD program. Fingers crossed that I'll graduate in December if I'm able to wrap everything up. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. That's exciting. Thank you. So your, your research is on Black women in STEM graduate programs. What led to your curiosity on that topic? Well, I am a Black woman in STEM. My bachelor's and my master's degree are both in biological sciences, 
from two different predominantly white institutions. So I do focus on the experiences of black women in STEM graduate programs at predominantly white institutions mm -hmm. in particular because of the fact that it's already known how well historically black colleges and universities typically do with students in STEM. So I wanted to hone in on what those experiences were like for black women in STEM graduate programs. When I first joined my PhD program, I really didn't know where I wanted to go with my, my research. I, I didn't know what I was gonna focus on. I knew I wanted to probably look at people of color in STEM, but I, I would have never said to myself before I joined my PhD program that I wouldn't call like myself a feminist or anything. I never really had thought about things in the lens of how my life was affected specifically because I was a woman. But then as I started learning about like the power dynamics in education and the different levels of intersectionality when it comes to experiences, I was like, oh yeah, I have, I've experienced those things. I was able, finally able to learn how to pinpoint an experience to a different like theory or concept. And so I was like, okay, I definitely want to explain focus on the experiences of black women in STEM. And then I decided to specifically focus on graduate school experiences because um, the number of black women in STEM tapers off as the educational level goes up into the career field. So black women make up a roughly six to 7% of the US population. They earn approximately four to 5% of bachelor's degrees in STEM which has been increasing in life sciences and is the bulk of where black women are in STEM, like biology, medical school, nursing programs and whatnot, but very low in your math and technology-based um, courses, engineering and, and such. But it is around four or 5% at the bachelor's level, but drops to 2% at the graduate level and 2% and below at the, in the career field. And like I said, that varies depending on what type of career field. So your engineering is gonna be much lower than your life science medical school or biology or whatnot. So I was like, okay, this is a very, an interesting dynamic because typically if you're going into STEM, you're gonna need a graduate degree if you're gonna wanna work and make a decent living depending on what the field is. So I really wanted to explore what was happening that either happening in the bachelor level that women were tapering off and not going to graduate school or perhaps even in graduate school and dropping out. Um, like what, what was happening? What were their experiences? And those that were there, how were they able to navigate it? So I wanted to look at it from an anti-deficit lens and not like pinpoint, you know, something's wrong with, you know, the education here or there, but saying these women that are in these graduate programs are here for a reason and they've been able to be incredibly successful. So let's highlight those reasons. Let's highlight what they've done, what they've overcome, how, what type of support did they have, what type of resources did they have access to, to get to this point. So we can try and magnify that in areas to help other women utilize those types of techniques. I'm really excited to see what you do with all of that research. And I mean, it's just this research is, is so heavy and it, it bears such deep roots historically and politically and socially. And I'm sure it's very emotionally draining work, but also probably rewarding. So I'm just curious what has been, well, first of all, the most rewarding or most exciting part of your research. Definitely the most rewarding and exciting is where I'm at currently. I'm in the interview stage where I am interviewing my participants and 
the fact that one, they trust me with their stories, um, it's confidential. So they all, or their participation is 100% anonymous. I'm not going on to share their names or where they're going to school or at or anything like that. So I appreciate that they're telling me and sharing their vulnerableness with mm -hmm. me so that I can tell their stories and in my research. So they are the essential stakeholders of my research. And it's an incredibly empowering feeling that they trust me with that and just listening to them. And, and some of them are more heartbreaking than others. And it's like, wow, this happened. The system failed you in this place. These things were said to you. These things were done to you. And so it, it's, it, it's exciting to dig into these stories. And I feel like I'm an empathic person. So I feel them to the core when they're telling mm -hmm. me it. And it just, it drives my passion to like, okay, start piecing these together and, and figure out, okay, what am I gonna do with this? What, what's my answer going to be to this? What solutions can I help provide? Um, this is a really exciting part from hearing their stories. Totally. And I feel like it's so nice to put like a human face behind research and you know, it can feel so th theoretical at some points and it's probably For so sure. nice to like see that human connection. I can Definitely. imagine. And on the flip side of, side of that, what has been the most challenging part of your research? Yeah, the, I'm a procrastinator. <laughs> um, it's very independent work at this point. So I'd say the most challenging part is making sure that I'm prioritizing it and getting it done no matter what keeps coming my way. I'm a full-time mom, full-time employee. And it can be challenging. I did transition to Youth Run NOLA right as I was finishing my classes for my PhD program and going into the writing phase. And I dropped the ball that whole year that I was there with them is just staying on top of things and making sure because it's busy work working for a nonprofit. So I didn't do the best job like staying on top and getting it done. Like a month would go without me writing anything in my, my chair, my advisor would be like, Ebony, what you got? What are you, what are you doing over there? <laughs> So I would say the most challenging thing is personally, because I'm so passionate about the work, is the heaviest thing is just being accountable to myself and making sure that I'm staying on top of things and doing what I need to do to get done with it. In the writing, it can, I, I write in my head before I put anything to paper. So sometimes I get like a, it's not even a writer's block. It's just like I'm sitting and I'm waiting for days at a time sometimes to just like, the words to come to me but when they come they just flow so that can be tedious part of my process I write in my head I love that because that is so relatable I also write in my head and I love that language because I never think of it that way I yeah I that's what I've come up with because I'll be with some of my classmates sometime and they'll be working diligently at their computer and I'm just like sitting there staring off in space and they're like, Ebony, this paper's due tomorrow and you haven't started. I'm like, it's, it's here. It's in my head. I'm gonna put it on paper in a little while when I get to it. And then it I'll, exists. It exists. And then I start <laughs> typing and they're feverishly and the next thing you know, 15 pages have been knocked out and they're like, I hate you, Ebony. How did you do that? And I'm like, I told you I was writing in my head. I just wasn't ready to start typing it yet. While we're on the topic of research, I have to let you know, Ebony, that, that I am like a super nerd and it sounds like you are too. So I love learning about like the nitty gritty of research. Like I want to know about like the theoretical framework people are using. And I was, you know, I was doing some digging on your Instagram and I saw that one framework you use is critical race feminism, or at least I think you still use that. Yes. Do you? Yes. 
Could that you explain? Is one of the core theories. I used two theories for my dissertation, social cognitive theory and critical race feminism, but majority of it is really focused on the critical race feminism component of it. It really speaks to my study through and through. So it was developed from another theory called critical race theory that really um, situated race and racism um, central to the theory that it exists. It's a permanent structure in society and influences almost everything that people do and how they interact with one another and how structures and systems are built, policies are created, no matter if people like it or not. So they also don't adhere to, they challenge the ideas of like, oh, neutrality or colorblindness, like, oh, I don't see color. Like, no, you, that, that's not real. Um, and it challenges those concepts. Because in colorblindness can be, um, it can be problematic because I, I do, I am brown and you are white. And my, my culture, my background, my history, it, it, it's rich. And to say that you don't see my color almost negates the fact that I do come from a background different than you and that we have a different experience. And even me, I'm, I am biracial. My mother was white. My dad is black. Even my experiences are going to be different from somebody like my daughter who is experienced in the world as a black woman, a full black woman. And when they, there's no doubt about it when you look at her. Some people might try and guess when they see me, I get things like that all the time, like, oh, what, you must be mixed with something. And they're right. But when you look at my daughter, they're not looking at her and saying that. And to say that um, my experiences are the same as hers or yours are the same as hers is far, far from accurate. So these theories focus on the idea that race is a thing and racism is real and that you you need to focus on those and center the aspects of social justice and the the stories and the experiences of historically marginalized communities black and indigenous people of color so critical race feminism though takes it a step further past just race and focuses on the experiences of women as well women of specifically women of color um, one of my favorite quotes is that and I'm blanking on who said it, it's in my dissertation, but it's that black women are not white women plus color or black men plus gender. Like we're not a monolithic black experience or a monolithic woman experience. Because I am black and I am woman, this idea of intersectionality that Kimberly Crenshaw came up with, this idea that I am black and I am women, they connect and they make my experiences different. Just like black men's experience are not going to be the same as white men. And my experience is not going to be the same as white women. It really focuses on the, the experiences specifically related to race and gender for women of color. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. It's, I mean, it's such important research and it sounds like such an important framework. And what I love is that I think it's really easy for people to hear about these things, like how identities intersect and just basically everything you talked about. Mm -hmm. But the fact that, you know, when you actually are learning about this research and how there are people behind it and, and how it connects to these stories, I think that is, that is so powerful. So I'm really excited to see everything that your research does. Yeah, I really love intersectionality. I love the idea of really 
honing in on the fact that so many people have these different identities that are going to influence how they see the world and how the world interacts with them. Just like my experiences aren't going to be the same as a black queer woman or a black trans woman and, and vice versa. And it's like, it, it really allows you by focusing on those things to take a, a second and breathe and listen to people and say, wow, they have something else to bring to the table, which is incredibly important when you start talking solutions. Because if you're not taking all of these experiences and accountability, you're only going to really have solutions that benefit one group of people. Yeah, totally. And I mean, obviously your research is so relevant to today. And, you know, we are having so many conversations about white supremacy and structural racism. It's kind of at the forefront of my mind, it's at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And with that in mind, what do you want the legacy of your research to be? Yeah. Right now, I just want to graduate and get done with it. And Valid. I honestly, I do, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. And there's, there's an initiative that I really want to start building on and working on when I get done. I'm hesitant to share it publicly because you never know where one of your ideas will end up. But yeah. when I talk to my research participants, they're having very similar conversations about the way people interact with them in STEM and their sense of belonging. So I know that when I get done, I want to work on an initiative that works on belonging, but also there's a very big mental health component. There's a lot of young ladies that have talked to me about how their mental health has fared because of their interactions and because of they, they feel like they don't belong in their imposter syndrome and how they feel like they don't identify as a scientist. And I, so I would like to, when I do start working on things, I'd like my initiative to include like a mental health component. I have big dreams of one day being able to start some type of cohort scholarship program that addresses the different facets of things that I'll, or I'm uncovering, uncovering in my research and, and being able to, to, work with a group of young women in STEM to build a support system through our cohort scholarship. Wow. Yeah. I mean, talk about intersectionality. I feel like we often compartmentalize in mm -hmm. our society when it's like mental health connects to racism, connects to this thing, connects to, you know, whatever identity. And yeah, I think that that's so interesting how you can take this in so many different directions. And it really is interconnected yeah so uh you mentioned a little bit earlier that you had your daughter in the last year of undergrad and yeah. I just wanted to bring that up because I mean I'm in complete awe of women who have had children during college could you talk a little bit if you're comfortable about that experience and raising your daughter when you were in school yeah my my girl she's been with me now she'll be 13 in August wow I tell people I'm not old enough to have a 13 year old, but I guess I am. <laughs> but um, I had her my senior year of undergrad. I tell, I've told my students this before I had her on a Friday and I went into labor on a Friday and I went back to class on Wednesday. And it's not something I would wish on necessarily anybody to do, but I did have a good support system and I had structured my classes since I knew she was coming for that fall to be predominantly online. And I only had to go to campus for one class. So my ex-husband and I would rotate off. I'd go to class. His schedule allowed him to be home. He was in graduate school at that time. So we paralleled our schedule in a way that if I didn't need to be on campus, 
she could be with him. And then going into the spring, I was fully on, on campus full time again, and she was in daycare by then. But it, it's always been an interesting experience, and I've, I've always been felt incredibly blessed by the people that I've had around me. I have um, some of my best of friends have always been there to help. Being in Louisiana, I'm always away from family. My, I was raised in St. Louis. My father's side, both of my parents were in the Army, so I'm an Army brat. I've been all over the country, but my mother's side of the family is in St. Louis. My father's side is on the East Coast. So being in Louisiana, it was never necessarily my family family that was there by blood, but I was able to build a really amazing support system that was there for me. So I had good friends. My ex-husband is from Louisiana. So his mom and dad um, were there and they've always been very, you know, in Charm's life and with her whenever we need and whatnot. So the support system is what was able to get me through into graduation. But then I got divorced and it's interesting because my master's program was probably the hardest years of my life, those two plus years. Yet my daughter reflects on them as the best years of her life. She's just, she speaks of them so fondly. She would come to campus with me in the evening and at my GA job and sit in my office with me and just draw and do whatever while I was working with students were studying. I would read my boring biology textbooks to her and she would just sit there and, you know, you know, entertain me. But she's been at all of my graduations. She watched me graduate with my bachelor's, my master's. She was at my military basic training graduation and when I commissioned as an officer um, for the Louisiana Army National Guard. So she's been at all of them. And I guess when you mentioned like what makes me want to inspire, it's most definitely my daughter. She drives me to, to push harder and, and do more. And she was snapping an attitude at me recently. I was like, girl, I need you to know I don't work this hard for myself. So if you're going to be this way, I could like definitely take my foot off the gas a little bit. And we don't have to like be, you know, living our best life because I grind the way I do to provide for you. So you better appreciate all of the things that we have going on around here as she's entering her teenage years. But yeah, it, it was definitely an experience. The master's program was the hardest um, because it was just her and I. My ex-husband was away at a military training for a lot of that. And so it was just her and I. And it was an interesting a rewarding but a very very empowering experience because we survived and she'll never know how hard it was <laughs> probably because yeah. she didn't have to worry about making ends meet but I would I would like work go to school during the day because that type of program didn't even have evening classes I'd work on the weekends and it is it was an interesting experience but here we are yeah, I mean, you talk about that support system you had, but like, I don't want to discount also you're amazing. And like, also, it sounds like you put in so much work and just were so driven throughout that whole entire experience. So like, I'm sure, yes, that support system was helpful, but also you obviously were, you know, extremely hardworking. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely, I had that mentality of like, okay, what am, if I don't do this, what am I going to do? I need to provide for her. Getting this degree will afford me an opportunity to get a better job. Getting my master's will definitely set me up for getting, I remember being in my master's program and like my computer, my laptop had broke and I needed to be able to run R, which is a, a scientific system. And my advisor set me up with an office on campus 
And he was like, I have a spare office, you can use it. Um, it's for my graduate students anyways, I'll put a computer in there for you. And so Charm and I would just go to that office to make sure we could get work done. But it was, it was a mentality thing. Like if I'm, what am I gonna do if I don't finish this? How am I gonna provide for her? This is going to create the opportunity that I need to get a good job. And even my advisor, cause I wanted to drop out of that program at one point because of an interaction I had with a faculty member. And he was like, no, he was like, mm -hmm finish this, see this through, you're gonna have a world of jobs open up to you when you get done because you have both a bachelor's and a master's in biology. So just just see it through, stick with me. And I was even like trying to change uh, like an education administration master's program, which is great. It's what I'm doing for my PhD. But he was like, no, do that at the PhD level. Stick with this here because having the bachelor's and the master's in biology is what's gonna open the doors for you. And I'm so glad he had that conversation with me because it is, it's what got me this job. My dog's over here trying to knock over the computer. It's totally fine. Their dogs have come into recordings many times before. So I'm used to, I appreciate the dog presence. <laughs> yes. But yeah, he, it's what got me my current job at um, UC Davis. And one of the things they told me when they hired me were, um, I run academic advising for the College mm -hmm. of Biological Sciences. And they told me we were so glad to have a scientist apply for this program. Somebody who knows what our students are going through, through their bachelors and their masters. And so it was really good to hear that people did value the work that I did to get those two degrees. And I love hearing about it just, oh, well, I see the dog now in the frame. Oh, what's your dog's name? I have to ask. Her name is Bella. Bella. Now that she's made herself part of the podcast. Yes. <laughs> she's so sweet. She just wants to be part of it. Yeah, she does. She hears me talking and she sees me talking to this, this square and she's like, why aren't you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like your daughter is so present in your academic life and you know everything you're you were doing you talked about how you had her in the office with you and you were doing research and all of that i'm curious whether your research on black women in stem has affected the way you raise your daughter or whether raising your daughter has affected your research kind of how that interplay between your mothering and academic life works out for sure. I've, I've learned so much about education since starting my PhD program. Um, even though I focus on higher education, there's a crossover in my current program with K-12 as well. So I've taken a number of K-12 program courses that have really opened my eyes to the drastic needs of K-12 education and the huge gaps and lack of resources, especially in black and brown communities that I just wasn't aware of. And I'm as a parent probably would have just been oblivious to and not been able to recognize it when I see it raising my child and be able to pinpoint, okay, I've learned about this. This is how you, we need to address. These are the type of conversations that need to be had in these spaces to improve these types of things. So that for sure has impacted what I'm thinking about when I'm putting in her in a school, when I'm talking to the administrators and the, the teachers in schools, when I'm addressing her needs, but one of my, core to my research, one of my other theory that I mentioned to you is social cognitive theory. And it basically um, focuses on self-efficacy, which is somebody's personal beliefs and their ability to be successful at a given task. And says that people are more likely to attempt something if they feel confidence within themselves, if they have a high self-efficacy that they can be successful at a certain task. And the way that 
sorry, going to nerd out for a second, but the way that nerd out uh, as much as you want. <laughs> is built to the primary way. Great. Two of the primary ways are through mastery experiences and vicarious experiences, mastery being your own personal experiences. So if I go and do something and I do it good and I'm successful at it, that's going to boost my confidence and make me want to go try it again. Um, and then vicarious experiences are those that you can learn through people within your network and your mm -hmm. close circle. And it really talks about how seeing someone like a mother or father, a sibling, an aunt, or a close role model mentor doing something successfully will help. That's the idea of like representation, like, oh, perhaps I can be successful at this. Mm -hmm. Perhaps I can be good at that. So it's Two things, wanting to make sure I equip her with resources and opportunities to practice different techniques and, and skill sets to boost her own personal confidence in areas. And then also trying to be the role model that she needs as a black woman in STEM, but just in education and academia in general, or in the nonprofit space, in the volunteering space, no matter what I do, try and do it positively and successfully, hopefully so that it can help show her that she can then in turn potentially do these things too if she wants to do them. That there's no barrier and that, um, that she can't overcome because she's seen someone do it successfully. Amazing. And I know another area where you really connect with your daughter is you go on a lot of adventures together and I know you're both runners. So could you talk more about that and how you and your daughter's relationship with running and adventure? Yeah. So like her running with me back in 2015 and showing me that she could do that really opened my eyes to like, oh, I've been limiting her. Because my first response to her when she, I remember we were driving down the street and I've told this story a billion times that we were driving down the street and I told her when we got home, mommy was going to go on a run around our neighborhood. And she was like, well, I want to go with you. I was like, I don't think you're up for it. Mommy's going to run like three miles today. And she was like, I was born ready. <laughs> she sounds amazing. <laughs> she really is. And I swear. And I looked up in the rear view mirror and I was like, born ready? Okay. I got you. You're coming with me today. So... Of course, I limited how far we ran that day. We didn't end up running three. We ran like, I think we finished two miles that day, but she was like, I was born ready. And that confidence was like, oh my, okay. I am sorry. I immediately told you that you could not do something, that I didn't think you were ready. And I didn't even give you the opportunity to show me that you were ready. And even though when we went out there, she dashed and ran 50-ish 50, 50 uh, meters and then was like done and wanted to quit, it's like she didn't know. She didn't know the technique. And so that was yeah. fine. It's like, okay, you're not done yet. You just, you went out too quick. So let's work on this and let's practice this. And once she successfully ran that first 5K with me at the um, Youth Run NOLA event for the Crescent City Classic here in New Orleans, I was like maybe I'm limiting her on other things. Maybe we should, maybe I should take her on some hikes that I've been wanting to go on and camping with me. She's not too, I've been treating her like a baby. She's eight at this point. So I started asking her at that time, her father and I, we've always done co-parenting pretty well. And I would have her for a week. He would have her at his house for a week, but we lived like five minutes away from each other. So we would see each other all the time. I would wait though to do like these types of things to when she was at her dad because I just was thinking oh she doesn't want to come out in the woods with me to go camping or on a hike and 
after we ran together, I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And I started asking her, do you want to go out on a hike with me? You want to go to the park and, and walk these trails with me? Um, let's go camping. And when she was younger, she was like, oh, yes, I want to go. And she would get her little adventure pants out and <laughs> get her little scarf and tie up her hair. And she was just ready. And she would. She would take on. Born ready. Yeah, she was born ready. That's right. And she'd be hopping these puddles and climbing these big rocks. It just was amazing to me that, you know, she had that type of energy and would just take things head on like that. But really running is her running that first time with me and telling me that she was born ready for these things is what made me realize I might have been limiting her and her girl power and that I needed to let her get out there and do these things. And I really do think she's a more well-rounded young lady because of it, even though she's a preteen now and she's not necessarily <laughs> that interested in going on hikes with mom or camping the first thing she did when we moved into Davis, the first club she joined was the Girls Outdoor Adventure Club. Oh, <laughs> and they go on hikes. That must feel so good. But... And can't, it does. And it's like, I'm so glad that she felt comfortable, especially she's the only Black girl in the space. Yeah. Like she felt comfortable to enter that space. She blends with everybody and interacts so well with everybody and is so well received by everybody. But that would have been a space I might have been like nervous to enter, but she just went in there and dominated and just, she's like, yeah, mom, I joined the Girls Outdoor Adventure Club. And it's something that moms are supposed to do with the kids, but she doesn't like it when I come. <laughs> so was it your idea or Charm's idea to start the blog about all of your adventures? I think it was predominantly me. Mm -hmm. I wanted, I would always share stories on my original Instagram account and people were like, man, we really, we adore you and charm together. I had started a hashtag chronicles of charm in Ebony and people would tell us, I just love your guys' hashtag and following your guys' adventure. So I said to her one day, I was like, do you want to start a blog with mommy? And we sat down and we came up with a name together. I let her be involved in on developing the website, picking the colors and the layout and her interest lasted about seven months <laughs> before she gave up and realized <laughs> I actually don't like writing <laughs> and she didn't she didn't want to write blogs she had said at one point that she would be interested in maybe creating blogs for it but mm -hmm. she, uh, that she didn't like next necessarily sitting there writing the lengthy stories she wanted to do like a quick paragraph hey i had fun today just you know like a quick caption so she does like doing that she likes sitting and picking out pictures for me to post and coming up with captions for it, but nothing lengthy. So yeah. she loves interacting with the Instagram account, but not necessarily the lengthy blogs. But the blogs will be so nice when she's older. Like, you know, when she's in her twenties mm -hmm. to have that to look back on. I know my dad used to uh, take videos of my sister and I like long videos every birthday. And now it is yeah. our favorite thing to watch. So she is going to love that when she's in her 20s. I hope so. I really do. She every now and then goes on it and she was like, oh, I forgot how about this. And I forgot about that vacation that we went on to Mexico and all that stuff we did that she, she wrote a really nice blog about. And she like recently logged in to show her teacher because her teacher told her they gave them a project to kind of create a website. And she's like, Psh. I've got one already. See it? I've been doing that for years. <laughs> and she showed it and she was so proud of it. So I was like, see, like you have a little piece of something that's always going to live out there. For sure.
So we've touched so much on you and your daughter's adventures and you're running with your daughter, but I want to make sure to touch on your own running because we didn't even talk about you're on a mission to run a marathon in all 50 states. Where are you now with that goal? Man, at the beginning, <laughs> um, I didn't even start this goal till 2017. And I ran my first marathon in 2017. I've since run, I think it's five states. I've run Louisiana, Florida, Illinois, Ohio, and California. So I've done five states since I started in 2017. I was supposed to do three more in the last 12 months and things just got thrown off with COVID and everything being canceled, which I'm perfectly okay with. I was supposed to run Mississippi Gulf Coast Marathon this past December, but when I moved to California, I had to scratch that. And then I was supposed to be running Missoula Marathon this weekend. And then the first weekend in August, I am supposed to run the ET extraterrestrial marathon in Nevada along the ET highway by area 51. And they haven't decided if they're going to cancel it, but I just, I don't necessarily know if I would participate no matter what, since I, I just, I don't know if I feel safe doing a crowd, even a small sure. crowd, but hopefully I'll be able to shift all of those that I was supposed to do this year to next year, maybe when it's a little bit safer and get back on and knock out the next three, but yeah, life happened this year and slowed me down a little bit. And with this transition to California, it's probably what needed to happen anyways. Mm -hmm. Well, you just have more time now to plan all of the marathons you're going to do. That's exactly. exciting. Yeah, yeah, I've always been interested in doing maybe not the, not necessarily the mainstream ones. No knock against any of those large race people, but I wanted to do some of the quirky ones. Um, Flying Pig, for instance, in Ohio is like the top marathon in the country. Yeah. It's well known. It's a big one, but it, it's so good. And I needed to do that one because the crowd support's amazing. It's my favorite marathon. And it's like people line the course from beginning to end. And it's just, they give out bacon on the course. And it's just <laughs> this whole cultural experience in this city. But E.T., it's smaller, it's more quaint, it's supposed to be more personal. You're running at midnight, literally, in the middle Ooh. of the night along Area 51. And it's just like, yeah, little quirky ones like that I kind of want to do too. But there was never a goal to rush it either. So when it's done, it's done. I hope to be running well into my 60s, 70s, maybe 80s, who knows? I, I get so inspired when I see people that are still out there trucking at an older age and accomplishing marathon distance. So no rush for me. I'll get it done whenever I get it done. I'm sure you will. Well, Ebony, I've loved talking to you and I want to be mindful of your time. So I'm going to begin to wrap up, but okay. first I'm going to bring you through some rapid fire questions that I have. Uh, oh, okay. First of all, Davis, California, New Orleans, Louisiana. New Orleans. Okay. I thought that would be the answer after yeah. talking to you. I think you've answered this, but favorite marathon you've ever done? Flying Pig. Okay. Yep. Flying Pig Marathon. And then you could run any marathon in any of the 50 states, all expenses paid. Which one would you choose? Mm, maybe one in Alaska because it's so expensive to get up there. So somebody else can pay all the funds to get up there. I was looking at that one for this summer and I, that's when I settled on um, Missoula Marathon. I was like, oh, no, Alaska is too expensive right now. So maybe one of those more expensive ones. So somebody else can foot the bill yeah. for it. Maybe someday. But yeah. Missoula is too. What a beautiful town. 
It is. It, it looks like a beautiful course and it's ranked as one of the top ones as well with a lot of great crowd support. So I was really looking forward to it. So the book that you find yourself recommending the most? Mm, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? That is a must read. It's great. It really dives into racial identity development. It talks about it at different stages from childhood, teenage, college years and where people are and why they do the things they do and how they're looking and trying to perceive and interpret things when it comes to race-based and it really even helped me explore like my mixed race identity and you know trying feeling lost and like who am I actually where do I fit in in all these years and whatnot so why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria awesome yeah I'll link that one in my show notes for sure so the last thing I need from you is why is sport a powerful platform for social change? I think it's a powerful platform for social change for one, because people love sports like, and it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be running. Everybody has a sport that they like, whether it's soccer, baseball, basketball, football, people are passionate typically about some kind of sport. Some, there's some people, though, that are not, but I think that actually as an athlete, the, it's empowering and it, it shows you your, how to push back past your limitations and exit your comfort zone. And for me, that is a lesson that I needed to learn and was a good lesson even for me in social change of like being comfortable with being uncomfortable. So there's a lot that you can learn about yourself when you're training as an athlete for various sports that you can then use as life skills in your everyday life. Just like what we do with the kids at Youth Run Nola. Yeah. Being comfortable or getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think we all need to do a little more of that. For sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ebony. I really appreciated this conversation. It was so much fun to talk with you today. And I really, I'm looking forward to following along with your blog and also just seeing everything that comes of your research. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really, really appreciate you letting me share about all the things that I'm passionate about, my research and my daughter. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social Sport. You can follow Ebony's adventures with her daughter at livinginthebreeze.com or on Instagram at livinginthebreeze. Ebony and I talked about so much in this episode, and if you want to learn more about some of the topics discussed, including Ebony's research, you can visit the show notes at anchor.fm slash socialsport. There you will also see a button that says support. Yes, Social Sport is now a listener-supported show, which is super exciting. It means that if you want to keep hearing conversations at the intersection of endurance sports and social change, you can pledge as little as $1 a month to keep the show growing and moving and grooving. You can also stay updated on Instagram and Facebook at Social Sport Pod. And there is nothing I love more than connecting with people. So please reach out if you resonate with the show. Thanks for tuning in. Keep sporting and keep resisting. Mm-hmm.